Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, your leading source of info for insights and best practices in digital health and digital transformation. Join host Patty Padmanabhan, CEO of Demo Consulting and co-author of Healthcare Digital Transformation, how technology, consumerism, and pandemic are accelerating the future in conversation with leading practitioners of healthcare and technology. This podcast is sponsored by HealthNext, the enterprise-class virtual care platform from Tech Mahindra Health and Life Sciences. Hello again, and welcome back to my podcast. This is Patty, and uh, it is my great privilege and honor to introduce my special guest today, Drew Schiller, founder and CEO of Validic. Drew, thank you so much for setting aside the time, and welcome to the show. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here. All right. Awesome. Awesome. So, Drew, for the benefit of our listeners who may not know Validic, uh, would you like to just take a couple of minutes and tell us about the company and the client needs that uh, your company's platform addresses? Absolutely. Thanks. So, Validic is the leader in connecting personal health data from in-home monitoring devices, wearables, health apps on the phone, really anything that you would capture from a device in your daily life and standardizing and normalizing that information and making it usable for the healthcare system. So what that means is we connect with hundreds of disparate sources, everything from blood pressure monitors, glucose, weights, continuous glucose, pulse ox, temperature, et cetera. You know, all of the, the wearables that you would expect as well as health apps on the phone. And we bring all of that into, all those data into a common ontology and we can provide access for that information in a variety of different ways. The two primary use cases we service are health incentives. And so this is, we work with a lot of, for example, commercial health plans and organizations that service large self-insured employers on wellness initiatives and general health initiatives with this type of platform, as well as disease management. And so with uh, disease management, we actually can power RPM programs for health systems and health plans that are looking to manage patients who are living with with chronic disease. Right. Your company is a pioneer in what is referred to as the uh, uh, remote patient monitoring space, the RPM space that you just referred to. Could you give us a little bit of a breakdown of what the RPM market looks like today? What is the demand environment like? How has uh, COVID-19 impacted the marketplace in general? Do you want to just give us the high-level overview of the market? Absolutely. I would say Before COVID, there was a high degree of interest in remote monitoring, primarily around health systems and health plans, trying to better understand what's happening in people's lives and looking to see if there could be new models of care to support things like Medicare Advantage programs, as well as other sort of more at-risk models of care for folks living with chronic disease. However, you know, this technology has been around for five, 10 years, but in some instances more. I mean, there, there were remote monitoring companies 20 years ago, but it hasn't really reached mass appeal yet. And COVID has changed all of that. So what happened was when COVID hit and folks who are living with diabetes and hypertension and folks who are being treated for or being discharged with heart failure, things like that, they very typically would have follow-up appointments or regular quarterly appointments to go in and see their cardiologist, their endocrinologist, et cetera. But in this particular instance, with COVID, those regular checkups actually got pushed, either pushed out or pushed to virtual. 
And so now you had a whole population of individuals who were undermanaged relative to how they had been seen previously. And even when they shifted to video visits, the physicians were actually missing one of the most critical elements to managing these chronic diseases, which is data. And doctors, it turns out, doctors need data to practice medicine, especially when they're managing patients with chronic disease. So what we've seen since COVID has been, you know, over the last, call it five to six months, is that the industry has accelerated by, you know, probably five to six years. I mean, it's just a lot of interest and new programs starting up, new clients coming online very rapidly. In fact, to, to meet the demand, Validic actually launched a new rapid deployment RPM product uh, just uh, just in the last month because we were trying to help our clients and our partners get up to speed and get up and running even faster with these programs rather than going through a traditional like heavy implementation route and trying to fit into IT implementation schedules and things like that. So it's really exciting to see where the market is today. And, and you know, I think that it's really going to be here here to stay. Now, that's a great uh, breakdown, and I'll come back to the demand env- environment in a little bit again. But I just want to clarify a couple of things. You, you mentioned something accelerated by five years, and I hear that a lot about the impact of COVID on digital health programs in general, you know, virtualization of care that you referred to. So that's obviously good news for companies like yours. At the same time, what are some of the challenges that now that kind of an acceleration imposes on uh, health systems and and folks who are running these digital programs. What do they need to do in order to be able to respond to this sudden acceleration in their uh, priorities? Yeah, absolutely. One of the challenges, frankly, is that I saw before COVID and has continued is that change management in these organizations is is really still a challenge. And Mm -hmm. While I have seen that RPM and virtual care in general is getting a heavy level of focus and investment, there's very frequently sort of decision by committee, and that really slows down the selection and innovation process. And so, you know, that's one of the biggest challenges that we uh, still see amongst health systems is just, you know, we can have the business sign off on something, but then there's a multitude of committees that also need to sign off. And <laughs> and so just kind of getting through that whole process is a pretty hefty lift. Um, right. The other challenge that we've, that we've seen is that sometimes uh, these programs are not getting put in place fast enough for the individual departments or physician groups. And so we're actually seeing pilot programs start in sort of skunk works <laughs> situations and it causes uh, vendor conflict and legal conflict and things like that internally because there wasn't a comprehensive strategy for the particular health system. And so one of the things where we've seen a lot of success is when there is a, a strategy of we're, you know, we are working on a comprehensive enterprise-wide solution. You know, we want to definitely solicit everybody's thoughts as part of this. And we, we expect that we'll have something in place that will be able to service everyone's needs. So it's not just endocrinology doing this and then cardiology doing that right. and then pulmonology doing this. And then the IT department is, gets very frustrated because it's, it's too many projects to handle. And I can, I can tell you from our experience that uh, most health systems are now kind of moving away from this departmental siloed functional decision-making and technology decisions. They want these technology decisions to have enterprise level impact. So, so, 
the good news there is that you know if you are doing business with a health system, more likely than not, you're being considered for an enterprise level program. The bad news, of course, is that it takes longer because these are <laughs> enterprise level programs, and this is what you what you refer to. But then that's a segue to my next question for you. When it comes to these digital programs, which is what I, I put the RPM solutions in as well, who is driving these programs today? Is there a specific individual or a, or a function that is driving it? Uh, do you see your clients setting up new organizations within their health systems to drive digital? What are you seeing as the org model to accelerate the adoption of these uh, new technologies and uh, accelerate uh, the implementation of these new programs? Yeah, absolutely. So we're seeing a couple of roles emerge that were not around um, even a few years ago, at least not as much. So one is a chief digital officer or chief digital health officer, something in that vein. And that's a role that, generally speaking, is is a somebody who is really dedicated to thinking about digital transformation in the organization and how to bring all of these all these stakeholders together internally, as well as different vendor solutions together to build a comprehensive digital solution. We're also seeing the rise of virtual care executives. So whether this is a VP of a virtual care, something like that, and, and those organizations- those, Telehealth, uh, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, VP of telehealth. And so, you know, whereas it used to be that that this role was generally speaking, kind of over care management and maybe video visits, that role is actually expanding quite a lot now to encompass a lot of other digital capabilities. And, you know, I'll just say that one of the things that that we are really excited by with this shift toward a more enterprise focus is that the way that Validic came to market was a little different than how a traditional um, RPM vendor does. So traditionally with RPM vendors, they sort of pick you know, they want to do remote monitoring for a disease state or maybe a set of disease states, and then they build a solution around that. And so that solution is, you know, it has patient education around this this type of thing. It has maybe some sort of patient engagement app around this very specific solution. It has a subset of devices that are very specific to those disease states they can deploy. And that solution typically lives outside of the clinical workflow and so it's something separate for folks in the enterprise to log into. Um, and it may or may not support the needs and the workflows of folks in, across the enterprise. And Validic actually came to RPM almost in a, we almost reverse engineered it because as you know, when we launched, Validic was primarily the personal health data platform. And so what we did first was integrate with hundreds of, of disparate sources and in-home monitoring devices Etc. And then once we had that platform, we began to see use cases developing. And one of the primary use cases was RPM, was health systems and health plans. And so what we've done is we went to them and said, hey, what are the things that you need for RPM? And what we frequently heard was we need it in the clinical workflow. We don't need patient education because we've already, we already have patient education. We don't need care plan design because we already have care plan design. What we need is for your system to interface with all of the other things that we've invested in to make this a seamless interaction and it doesn't feel like something separate, like one more thing for our physicians and, and other uh, clinical right. team members. Right. And so we feel very fortunate that we're in this position now where things are moving to the enterprise, which is what we were expecting would happen. 
And now we're in a place where we actually have a solution that can scale across the enterprise and support any disease state with any with any type of device, with any type of data for multiple departments. So now you mentioned that uh, you know there's the emergence of all these new roles, chief digital officer and uh, you know VP of telehealth and so on. So has your client profile therefore changed significantly? And you know, in a more broader sense, has the ownership for digital programs in general shifted away from, let's say, the CIO to an entirely new role? Is that a broad trend you're seeing, or is that still not a big enough percentage of the overall population of uh, you know health systems out there? Yeah, I would say it is a broad trend we're seeing with a little bit of an asterisk. And so the asterisk is that all of these programs ultimately generally roll up to the CIO. But there's quite frequently a new executive, whether that's BP, SVP, C-level, that reports to the CIO that takes this on. Four or five years ago, if you were talking to the CIO, you were talking to the right person. And now there are so many other things that, that CIOs have to manage. It's become much more of a data and comprehensive platform strategy management role as opposed right. to right. as opposed to you know digital initiatives now if we're talking to mm-hmm. a CIO the first question i ask is who should i be talking to on your team right right <laughs> who's right. running this <laughs> that's usually the very first question i ask because their purview has expanded and and that's really been you know a big evolution i know i'm sure you've seen it yeah. um, in your work it's been a big evolution over the last you know 5 years or so yeah, no, uh, since you mentioned that, we do, you know, we pay a lot of attention to this question because uh, it's important for my own business, but also we want to understand how the market is changing and how the roles are changing. We do see the emergence of uh, the uh, chief digital officer that you mentioned, but the org models, uh, there's a lot of variation in the org models. In many cases, the CDOs are peers to the CIO. Maybe they both report up into the CEO. In uh, other cases, the CDO role is combined with some other role, which could be a clinical role, could be a patient experience role, it could be an innovation role, could be a marketing role. So there are different org models, uh, in some of which uh, the CDO role is standalone, in others it is combined with some other operational or clinical role. And the most common model that we see is that the digital function sits with the CIO. But of course, that doesn't mean that the CIO is driving every you know, every single program, to your point, there are different individuals that have uh, discrete responsibilities for, let's say, telehealth on the one hand, RPM on the other, population health management, and so on and so forth. So it is still evolving. But anyway, that, is a, that was a good discussion. Now, I want to switch tracks a little bit. Uh, I want to mention something here. I just came out with my second book, as you know, and you're the only person that is in both my books. You're in my class. <laughs> you were in my first book. And you are in this book. And uh, and of course, the world's changed a little bit uh, in, in the interim. But I wanted to, you know, I wanted to bring your attention to a comment that you made to me when I interviewed you for this book, which was just before the pandemic. And uh, one of the things that you, you told me, which is very insightful, and it is in the book too. So what you said was that startups are building their solutions to deliver clinical outcomes but they're not necessarily focusing on financial outcomes. So there's a lot of subtext to it. One, I believe you're referring in some way to the reimbursement environment, 
And of course, you're, you're referring to the need for demonstrating a financial ROI for the ultimate customers of these solutions. So can you comment on how the pandemic has changed that equation for digital health startups? Has, for instance, the reimbursement environment become better? Have, for instance, health systems lowered their thresholds for ROI because they see this as a strategic priority? What are you seeing? Yeah, absolutely. First, let me say I am flattered and floored that I'm the only person in, in both of your books. So thank, thank you for that. That's, um, I'm, I'm honored. Um, yeah, you know, what I'm seeing when I'm talking with other, with other founders and other companies, I'm seeing a couple of things that have happened since COVID. The first is that if you have a solution that has something to do with virtual care, and this is, you know, this could be, I'm talking broad virtual care. This could be video visits. This could be consumer engagement through an AI chatbot. This could be RPM, you know, anything like that. What I have personally witnessed as well as anecdotally heard from my peers in the industry is that that things are taking off like like wildfire. So the big difference is that like nothing has changed except <laughs> like from a reimbursement perspective, nothing really directly has changed except the perception that health systems realize how far behind they they were in implementing these technologies. And they they've been kicking these ideas around for the last, you know, two, three, four, five years. And now they needed to implement them in two, three, four, five months. And so so that that really jump started things. The other thing that has had that it that shifted, and this is more of a this is more of a theory uh, that I've been developing, but it's not new that many health systems have some small portion, whether it's 20, 25%, 30% of their patient population in some sort of at-risk contract. That's pretty standard. But the in order to service those at-risk contracts in a pre-COVID world, there were so many administrative things that you could cut out. And you know, there's there's just so much overhead that you could sort of get rid of to make servicing those clients more cost effective. That that was really where a lot of the where we saw a lot of the attention being placed. But when once COVID hit, all of a sudden, all of the virtual tools that could have been available to them that could have really reduced the cost of care and the burden of care for their team members weren't in place. And so now those systems are saying, we have to get this in place now, if at the very bare minimum for our at-risk population, because you know if there's another lockdown, if there's, God forbid, another pandemic or whatever, virtual tools are the way that we're going to be able to take, you know, that we're going to be able to come out ahead on our at-risk population, which is absolutely critical if the fee-for-service goes away. And so, like, it's being used as more of a catalyst than what I had seen in the past. I don't know if you're seeing the same thing, but that's that's kind of where where a lot of the conversations I've been in are, are headed. Clearly, the lockdown and the, the inability of uh, patients to come into the office I mean, the clinic and, uh, you know, the, the reduced foot traffic and all of that has certainly therefore accelerated the investments in virtual care platforms. And I do believe that the financial models to look at the look at these investments have therefore necessarily changed. You cannot you know, go through your traditional financial modeling where, you know, you do a pilot and you demonstrate the results on a limited scale and then you scale it up and then you do it in a gradual and incremental way. But COVID-19 is the ultimate black swan, right? And so I think that is uh, yeah. what has made, made this big uh, big shift 
in thinking around uh, technology implementations, technology strategy, and of course, uh, investments and, and, uh, and the whole notion of, you know, what is the return today and what is necessary for survival and relevance in the future. So to a great degree, we are seeing the same thing that, that you're seeing, and this is what our research is telling us as well. I forgot to answer the second part of your question, or the second part of my, my statement, which was the other thing that we're seeing is that for organizations that, for companies that have a, an efficiency ROI baked into what they sell, initially, prior to COVID, it was a really tough sell selling anything with efficiency ROI. And now, and I mean like only in the last maybe, you know, couple of months since August, all of a sudden the efficiency ROI is actually something that from what I understand, health systems are paying a lot more attention to. And it's because they've had to reduce so many team members and they're facing, you know, there's big furloughs, they're facing staffing shortages that were self-imposed or self-imposed because of the, the fiscal realities yeah. of COVID. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, whereas before it was like, yeah, I mean, some efficiency would be nice. Now efficiency ROI is actually really critical. So that's the other big thing that we're seeing for organizations that it's not just the clinical ROI. If they have efficiency ROI, that's really helping. That, that's very insightful. No, thank you for that. Okay. I'm going to shift gears one more time. And this is, uh, let's talk about the startup environment. And uh, I want to talk about the broader technology technology solution provider environment as well. So firstly, we're in the midst of an IPO boom, it looks like to me. You know, every other week, there's some tech IPO. And several digital health uh, IPOs have already occurred. And some big m and I'm referring to the Livongo Teladoc one. But you know, I, I have to believe that there's more like that that are coming down the pipe. What do you make of this trend? And uh, what do you foresee in the next 12 months or so as you know, digital health firms start taking advantage of the COVID opportunity and grow to some degree of scale? Do you see more IPOs, more M&A? Do you think there's some risk that uh, there'll be a shakeout as well? What are you seeing? What is your assessment? Yeah, I think that we will definitely see more tech IPOs and IPA, or, and, um, or excuse me, M&A in, um, yeah. in healthcare. And, and the, the reason is, you know, like I said, the industry accelerated forward so fast and the same realization that we at Validic, for example, had when the pandemic hit and lockdown hit and we thought, oh my gosh, what does this mean? And then we realized, oh, we're a healthcare technology company. We can do something to help. <laughs> the markets have realized that. And so, you know, the, the public investors have very clearly recognized that digital health is a way forward for for healthcare, which is extremely exciting, as well as on the M&A front, what we're seeing is that, and I think that, frankly, I think the Teladoc-Lavongo merger kind of woke a lot of folks up to this, but we're seeing that the chips are being laid on the table today in terms of uh, which organizations are going to own and, and dominate the virtual care space over the next two to three to five years. And so like, I think it's gonna take, you know, call it six to 12 months really to kind of fully shake out with all of the IPOs and the M&As. But, but I do think that we will see a very different, maybe slightly consolidated landscape of really strong players over the next, over the next time period. So obviously that begs the question of what are the big tech firms, what are they gonna do about this, right? the dominant position of the electronic health record vendors is well known. And they're obviously trying to kind of transform themselves into 
into big players in the, in the emerging digital health landscape. But then the big tech firms, I'm talking Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, they're, you know, they're, they're launching new products that are getting them deeper and deep, deeper into the healthcare delivery space. And Microsoft, for instance, now their Teams platform is now the, the video console platform that you can launch through the Epic EHR. It's kind of a you know, first of a kind kind of a deal. Apple is getting into the fitness space. You know, Amazon launched their, uh, you know, their wearable Halo and, you know, they're, they're launching virtual care service for, for their for their employees and so on. Where do you see them headed? Do you see them getting deeper and deeper into healthcare services? And uh, in, in that context, what happens to the smaller digital health companies that they are also playing in the space? Yeah, it's a really great question. I do see them getting, I do, I do see the big tech firms getting deeper into the healthcare space and with, and with healthcare services. I think that each one is going to play to their respective strengths. And so, you know, what I think is likely is that, you know, what we saw Amazon, for example, come out with a consumer wearable device. They are a very, very consumer focused company and they have a lot of unique assets in that area. And I think that they're going to really head into health consumer. And that could mean a lot of different things. It could still mean partnerships with healthcare organizations, but I think it'll be very consumer focused on they take and the route they take, very similar to how Apple has has really doubled down on the consumer focus with their solutions. You know, Microsoft, for example, especially under Satya Nadala, has really invested heavily in enterprise platforms. Like that's been the nature of of all of the acquisitions that the, the big acquisitions like LinkedIn and GitHub that he's led. Yeah. And I think that what we're seeing, you know, with the announcement of the Azure Health Cloud, I think that that Microsoft is really going to double down on the enterprise side of healthcare in some pretty interesting ways as well. So yeah, I, I definitely think that there'll be more there. You know, from a from a from a startup perspective, I think it's it's a challenge and an opportunity. The challenge is that when you have when you have these big players entering the market, and especially when you have, you know, the the larger market dynamics that I mentioned, where a lot of chips are being laid on the table today that are going to kind of lead the market forward over the over the next several years, that takes a lot of opportunity away from startups in terms of them being able to really have a seat at the table. So that's that's a big challenge. However, the opportunity is that for these big firms, when they go to scale something, it takes them a lot of time and a lot of resources because they're doing it at such scale and volume. And as you know, nothing moves fast in healthcare from a, a legal and implementation perspective. Yeah. And so there's a, a massive opportunity to look, you know, five years out, uh, 10 years out for these for startups today to say what is going to be needed that these companies are not going to be thinking about. And, you know, Politic, we found ourselves in that very fortunate position seven years ago when we market launched. There wasn't anything like what we were doing. And then all of a sudden there was, but, but we, you know, were able to kind of continue to rise to the top and uh, and continue to be the, the you know, what I, what I consider to be the best in class of, of what we, for what we do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think there's still that opportunity today. It's just, you know, entrepreneurs will have to think a little bit more creatively about where they could uniquely approach the market that maybe might be a blind spot for one of these big tech firms. Right. So obviously, yeah, that begs the question of how do they last that long? We're talking about five years, seven year opportunity uh, yeah. uh, cycles. 
And I agree with you. I think there is a there's a huge opportunity opening up, and we are in very early stages. But there is uh, the here and now, and there is you know how how you get from here to the next stage, and the next stage, and the next stage. That requires scaling. That requires remaining invested in the market. That requires dealing with long sales cycles, and ultimately it all, it all boils down to your financial ability to kind of ride this out and see it through to the end. So everybody can benefit from it, which means that, you know, the VC environment has to be supportive of this kind of a, an outlook on the market. What are you seeing in the VC funding environment, especially in the post-COVID kind of scenario? Are you seeing startups getting funded more, less? Are you seeing funding drying up? What are some of the dynamics that you're seeing? Yeah, so there is just as much, if not more capital today um, as there was a couple of years ago. And that's been a continual trend in this space. The challenge is, and unfortunately COVID has not changed this, the challenge is that the companies that continue to get funded are the companies that are later, more growth stage venture companies where there's already been achieved some level of scale and that the bet is a little bit shorter. Like we've seen some really, really big funding announcements recently from some of the, you know, the more growth oriented startups in this space. And, and it's exciting. It's great for the industry. But the challenge is that there's really a gap uh, for early stage companies, you know, between a pre-seed round and sort of a series B, because it's really hard to get enough traction to get a full seed round or, or let alone get a full series A at a strong valuation. It's just, it's just very, very difficult especially if you're targeting health systems or health plans. And so typically when I'm talking with entrepreneurs of early stage companies, my counsel to them is to actually see where they can solve that problem, solve the problem they're trying to solve, but for a different stakeholder than a health system or a different stakeholder than a payer. So that could be, it could be that they could solve that problem for a health IT vendor that could then you know, sell that to a health system. It could be that they solve that problem for a, a nursing home or for senior living facility, or it could be for a direct-to-consumer, which is also its whole, it's whole, yeah. it, whole can of worms on, in its own. But, yeah. but try to find a path to scale that doesn't initially require you to scale through health systems. It's so hard to get initial traction there. And I mean, our story at Politic was very similar to that. We, we lucked into it as opposed to having a, a particular strategy, but we actually scaled initially through primarily through wellness IT and health IT vendors. They were selling consumer health solutions or sort of fully baked solutions for health systems, but they were almost, we were an enabling function for them to have more capabilities in the space. And then we were able to leverage their scale to actually grow our business. And so yeah. it was a, a very fortunate circumstance that we found ourselves in. Yeah. And I don't think we'd be here today if we if we weren't able to find that. Well, final question on that. Uh, so, you know, obviously you, you talked about the funding environment and it's unfortunate that you know, all the funding is getting concentrated in late stage companies. That really creates a drought at the early stage level, the consequences of which are going to be visible a few years down the road. Uh, but the flip side to the equation is obviously the level of risk that clients are willing to take on unproven early stage companies, albeit uh, innovative companies, right? And health systems have always been risk averse. Has that, have they become more risk averse since COVID-19 and have they therefore 
complicated the landscape even further for early stage companies and complicated their chances of securing funding. Is that what is happening? I don't think it's necessarily specifically because of COVID-19, but I, I definitely think that over the last 18 to 24 months, they've become much less risk averse. And mm-hmm. internally, I just for my for myself, I kind of label this the Theranos effect, which was that, you know, so many people wanted to believe in this really innovative technology. Um, and it turns out that it just wasn't possible. Right. And so the level of the burden of proof is so much higher. And it's not just because of Theranos, but that didn't help. The burden of proof today is so much higher. And even if you're able to show some level of proof and some level of traction and some level adopt of adoption, you still have to convince the health system or the or the health plan, et cetera, to take a little bit of a flyer. And that really comes down to personal relationships. And the fact of the matter is that the way these organizations are structured now, you can have an innovation officer, a digital officer, something who believes in what you do and wants to shepherd that through. But there's this really huge firewall of procurement now that analyzes things very, very, very deeply. And they have extremely deep tech and security reviews. And all, and that's all great. I mean, that's it, it's necessary because we definitely don't want to have our our health records stolen and <laughs> and all of that. We don't want to have security breaches, but it makes it much, much more difficult for an early stage company to get through that whole process than a company that's later stage like ours, where, you know, we have dedicated privacy and security folks and dedicated legal people. And you know what I mean? Right. Like who right, can right. actually navigate that whole thing? It's that's the real challenge is hard enough to get a champion, and but it's become harder for that champion to actually bring shepherd the company through. Well, to be continued, uh, I guess we're going to have to leave it there. We went way over time, and that is just an indication of how fascinating this conversation has been, Drew. I really want to appreciate uh, your insights. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today and be on the podcast. This is going to be one of the, I can tell you right now, this is going to be one of the more downloaded podcasts, (laughs) just because of the quality of the conversations that we've had. And once again, all the very best to you and your team. Congratulations on your recent successes and everything. We'll be in touch. Yeah, thanks, Patty. Really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We invite you to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Healthcare Digital Transformation Leader. Write to us at info at thebigunlock.com with your feedback and questions. <laughs>